Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Are y'all doing all right this morning? Love it. Summer going good? Love it. We're, uh, we're teaching on the end of the world and hell this morning, so I just wanted to make sure you were, <laughs> you're mentally present with me. Uh, if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 25, that passage we just read, Matthew chapter 25. Um, if you're new here on Sundays, again, welcome. Uh, our church has been, uh, for the better part of the past three or four years, has been walking through the gospel of Matthew in the Bible. If you're new to the Bible, Matthew is one of four early biographies of Jesus's life that we have in the Bible. Jesus, like I said earlier, is sort of a big deal to us around here, and so we figured there are a few better things to do uh, than just spend the better part of four years uh, studying his life and ministry and teaching in depth, getting to know him really, really well. And that's precisely what we're doing by studying this book of Matthew together. We've been at it since August 2020 or so. Uh, But specifically, over the past three or four weeks in this series, we've been looking at a section of Matthew where Jesus talks a lot about what he calls the end. He calls it the end. The end is his language for the day at some point in the future where he is going to return to planet Earth a second time and he's going to restore all things, make all things new again. For the past four weeks, we've looked at what Jesus says about that day, about the end. And we've looked at it from all different angles. We've clarified some portions of Matthew 24 that, contrary to what a lot of people think, probably aren't about the day that Jesus returns. We've looked at what the end will not look like, uh, namely that it probably won't look like Jesus sucking us all up into heaven through a secret rapture. Our apologies to Kirk Cameron and company for that one. Um, We've also talked about how none of us should really busy ourselves with trying to predict the exact time or day when Jesus will return, because according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, even he himself does not know when that will happen. And in the past two weeks, we've talked in detail about how to be ready for the end to happen as followers of Jesus. But the one thing that we have not discussed so far, at least in detail, is what exactly the end will be like. What is the shape of that day when it happens? What exactly will happen on the day when Jesus returns to earth to make all things new? That largely is what we're going to get into this morning. So, are you guys ready for one more teaching about the end of the world? I don't know what I expected out of that response, but that'll do. Like three of you are excited, the rest of you are already here and you feel too awkward to leave. So here we go. Take a look with me at Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. Jesus speaking says this. 
when the Son of Man, that is Jesus himself, Son of Man is Jesus' favorite title for himself. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne, which is ways of signifying Jesus' authority and power as king. Then Jesus says, verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So Jesus tells us that at the conclusion of history, whenever that happens, all of the nations will be brought before him. And that word nations in verse 32 could be more literally translated people. All the people on earth will be gathered before him. And at that point, he will make a determination about the ultimate destiny of every person who has ever lived. And to describe how that will work exactly, he uses a metaphor of a shepherd separating the sheep from the goats. This was a metaphor lifted directly out of the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, but it was also just a commonly understood responsibility of people that worked as shepherds at the time. So the metaphor likely had at least two components to it. On the one hand, to the average person, at least from a distance, sheep and goats would probably look at least somewhat similar, especially when they were mingling together out in the fields. But on the other hand, up close, any shepherd worth his salt would obviously be able to distinguish between a sheep and a goat. So here's what Jesus is saying, I think. Similarly, when you and I look at people from a distance, we are often not very good judges of who they are or what they're like. We're, we're often not good at determining their character, much less if they know Jesus or not or where they will spend eternity. But Jesus says he does know. The good shepherd can be trusted to make that determination. He sees with complete clarity which people know and love and follow him and which people don't. That's what a shepherd does, and that's what Jesus, the good shepherd, will ultimately do when the end comes. Now next, he's gonna, give, he's gonna tell us a little bit more about how exactly he will make that determination. Look with me at verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, which according to verse 33 is the sheep, come to you who are blessed by my father, Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For, and here's the reason, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. So the determining factor, the way that Jesus distinguishes between the so-called sheep and the goats evidently is this. The sheep, the faithful ones, are the ones who in one way or another welcomed Jesus, accepted Jesus. If people did that, Jesus says, they get to spend eternity with him and the Father in what he calls the kingdom. Now, I would guess that that probably jibes more or less with what many of us have heard before about eternity, especially if we grew up in and around the church, right? So to a lot, a lot of us, it probably sounded something like this. If you accept Jesus, you go to heaven. If you don't accept Jesus, you go to the other places. Anybody heard something resembling that before? Okay. 
I guessed as much. So, so far, so good. Except at, at exactly the same time, Jesus seems to be saying something a little bit more than that here. Because it doesn't seem like he's just talking about raising your hand at a church service or telling people that you accepted Jesus in a spiritual internal sense. Here in Matthew chapter 25, it seems like Jesus means something a little more tangible than that. A little more active. He, he speaks of us feeding him, giving him something to drink, clothing him, tending to him when he was sick, visiting him in prison. That, at least to me, seems a little more concrete than just asking Jesus into your heart. Do you see that in the passage? So the question then that we need to answer is, what does Jesus mean exactly by us doing all of these types of things listed in the passage for him? What does it mean to feed, clothe, visit, provide for, etc., Jesus? What does he mean by that? That really is the question that gets asked next in the passage itself. So take a look with me at verse 37. Then the righteous, who in the story are the same group of people as the sheep, will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? So these people in the story have roughly the same question we do today. Jesus, what, what do you mean we did these things for you? How specifically have we fed you, clothed you, welcomed you, provided for you? Jesus' answer, verse 40, the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So it turns out Jesus was not talking about the people in the story literally feeding and clothing and caring for him. He was saying that by them doing that for this other group of people, they were in essence doing it for him. That's his point which means that to understand the type of thing that Jesus is commending here in this passage, we need to nail down who exactly this group of people is that he mentions. Once we know that, we can know who the people are that Jesus is identifying himself with, and we can know who we are called to care for as followers of Jesus. Everybody with me so far? Okay. Now, some people have suggested when reading this passage that what Jesus is talking about here is just a general sense of generosity and benevolence and justice towards people in the world that are in need of those things, that that's what he's talking about. So if anyone in the world is hungry, you should feed them. If anyone is thirsty, you give them something to drink. If anyone is in need of clothing, you clothe them and so on. That's what some people think Jesus is referring to here. And just for clarity, there are plenty of places in the Bible that do encourage us as followers of Jesus to do exactly that. But Jesus' language here in Matthew chapter 25, again, seems a little more specific than that. He doesn't just say, if you feed any person who is hungry, you fed me. He says, if you fed the least of these, quote, brothers and sisters of mine, you fed me. Everywhere else that Jesus uses the language of brothers and sisters, he is referring specifically to followers of Jesus, people who belong to the kingdom of God. So, for example, take a look with me at this from Matthew chapter 25, 
verse 50. I'm sorry, Matthew 12, verse 50. It says this. We'll put it up on the screen. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister. So it would seem that here in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is talking about the way that we, as followers of Jesus, treat other followers of Jesus. According to Jesus, the determination of who spends eternity with him and who will spend eternity separated from him will depend at least partly on how we treat other followers of Jesus. He literally teaches that the people who inherit the place prepared for them will do so because they tangibly provided for other followers of Jesus who were in need of those things. Now let's just take a second and unpack that. Because at least on its own, some people and some church traditions would be very uncomfortable with what I just said. To them, that might make it sound like Jesus is saying that we are accepted by God on the basis of our works, which is Christianese for things that we do. And if that is what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 25, then that would put him at odds with much of Paul's writing in the New Testament about how we aren't justified and accepted by God on the basis of our works. Now, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying at all. I personally am of the belief that Jesus had incredible theology. But he is saying here that our works, specifically our love for each other, is evidence of a relationship with Jesus or lack thereof. Jesus is not saying that people are saved by the things that they do, but he is absolutely saying that the things that they do reveal whether or not they are saved. Does that make sense? And this idea specifically that our love and care for other followers of Jesus is evidence of our faith, our belief in God, comes up a number of other times in the New Testament. So the book of 1 John specifically talks about this idea a lot. Take a look with me at just a couple examples up on the screen. This first one is from 1 John chapter 4. It says this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves, which in context means loves one another, loves other followers of Jesus, has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. That's fairly plain language there in 1 John 4. Someone who actively loves other followers of Jesus knows God. And someone who doesn't actively love other followers of Jesus does not know God. Look with me at another example, 1 John chapter 3. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, so he starts to sound a lot like Matthew 25 here, sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Answer, they can't. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So this one sounds a lot like Jesus' logic in Matthew chapter 25. It's almost like the scriptures are unified in what they teach or something. 
John just said, if you love and care for God's people, that is evidence of you having a relationship with God. So if you see a brother and sister, a brother or sister in some type of need, food, water, clothing, assistance, and you do not lend a hand, well, then the only logical conclusion is that you do not actually know God. So do you see how closely these two ideas are connected in the scriptures? Love of God and love for others. A, a love for Jesus, the scriptures say, necessitates a love for other followers of Jesus. And a genuine love for other followers of Jesus is evidence of a love for Jesus. This is why I get so baffled sometimes when people will say things like, oh, I love Jesus, I just don't love the church. Because that, with all due respect to the people saying it, is theologically impossible. You can love Jesus and be frustrated by the church. I often am. You, you can love Jesus and have issues with the church. You can even love Jesus and not be a fan of a lot of the church's activities and actions as we see it. But you cannot love Jesus and not love, serve, and sacrifice for other people that love Jesus not help them, not care for them, not provide for them when they're in need. You can't love Jesus without living in active relationship with other followers of Jesus. Jesus just told us that that is an impossibility. If you love God, you will necessarily love God's people. And Jesus is going to tell us next that there are consequences of living a life absent of the love of God. So pick it back up with me. Matthew chapter 25, this time in verse 41. This is where it starts to get a bit heavy. Then he will say to those on his left, so now Jesus pivots, talks to the other group of people. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was, in, I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And then verse 44, they will also answer. This group will also answer. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? When did that happen? Verse 45, he will reply, truly I tell you, Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Okay, so Jesus just repeated everything he said in the first half of the passage, but now he puts it all in reverse. The first group of people cared for Jesus by caring for his people. Their, their welcome and provision for God's people was evidence of their welcome and provision for Jesus himself. And in this part of the passage that we just read, we find out that the inverse of that is also just as true. The second group of people's unwillingness to welcome and provide for God's people is also evidence of their rejection of Jesus himself. And the consequence of rejecting Jesus is eternal separation from him. It's what Jesus describes with imagery like eternal fire and eternal punishment, which is the imagery that he uses everywhere else in the Gospels for what you and I call hell. 
the state of perpetual separation from God. Which means that in the past three teachings that I've given here at City Church, I have talked about abusive church leaders, the end times, and hell. And I am now realizing I need to get better at putting together our teaching schedule so that I do not have to teach all of those topics. But from what I can recall, last week, Marcus all but promised y'all that I was going to answer all of your questions about hell. That was at least my understanding of it, so thanks for that, Marcus. Um, But let's talk for a bit. Because this idea of hell or eternal punishment is admittedly one of the most difficult ideas for us as modern Americans to get on board with. To, To many, many people, hell feels woefully incompatible with our understanding of God and what he is supposed to be like. We hear passages like this one that we just read, and whether we want to admit it or not, something within us just goes, really? Eternal punishment? Fire? Is that really what's going to happen? So because of that gut reaction, here's what I'd like to do. Here for just a bit, I want to try to address some of the more common pushbacks that we tend to have to the idea of hell. We'll take a brief detour from our passage to acknowledge and respond to those since Jesus brings it up in the passage. And then after we do that, we'll hop back into the main point of this passage. Does that sound good? Sorry, does this sound good is probably the wrong question to ask when talking about hell. Does that sound helpful to do at least? Okay, so first and most common pushback that I hear people have when it comes to the idea of hell goes something like this. Isn't it unloving for God to send people to hell? Isn't it unloving for him to do that? If God is truly loving, some people think, well, then he should forgive and love and accept everyone, not send some people away to eternal punishment. And while that really does sound like compelling logic, at least to a lot of us, I would argue that that operates on a somewhat shallow definition of the word love. Because love, at least true love, does a lot more than just wish people well and lead them to exclusively pleasant places. True love is actually much deeper than that. True love does much more than that. So we often operate on the assumption that love and judgment are polar opposites, right? They're diametrically opposed to one another. We say love people, don't judge people because they're opposite from each other. If you love someone, you therefore cannot ever issue any type of judgment against them. But I would just ask you, is that true? Is that actually how it works? So for example, let's say that my son Wit has started skipping school regularly to go and steal stuff with his friends. He's seven years old, so I hope that we're a long ways from that. But who knows, right? Let's say that that is happening currently. Now, I love my son a lot. Anybody who has ever heard me just talk for hours about how proud I am of him knows that I love my son a lot. So question, would it be unloving for me in that type of situation to tell him that skipping school to steal stuff is wrong? Because that's issuing a judgment against him Would it be unloving for me to to punish him in some way, provide some type of consequence for that action? Would that be unloving for me to do as his dad? 
Would it be unloving for me if his behavior continues to allow him to experience at least some natural consequences of his actions? I think at least most rational people would answer all of those questions with no. That's not unloving to just allow someone to experience natural consequences of their actions. It's not wrong, it's not unloving to tell someone that their actions are wrong, especially if they are indeed wrong. In fact, I think some people would argue that sometimes those can be the most loving things to do to somebody. To tell them that they're wrong, to let them experience the natural consequences of their actions. Some people would argue that allowing a person to experience the negative consequences of their actions is actually one of the most helpful things to do if their behavior persists and if it's hurting other people. So while love people, don't judge people might make for a really good bumper sticker, I don't know that it's fully thought through. Because love and judgment are not always opposites. Sometimes they even work hand in hand. So is it unloving for God to punish people? I think bare minimum we can say not necessarily. Sometimes love is allowing people to experience the consequence of their actions. But maybe to all of that you say, okay, but isn't hell too extreme of a consequence? Isn't hell, at least as it's spoken of in the Bible, isn't that sort of disproportionate? It feels disproportionate to us. Like the, like the father who catches his kids smoking weed one time and says, you never are leaving the house until you're 18. Like it feels a little bit like an overreaction to us. To some of us, it feels like the punishment doesn't fit the crime. Isn't hell too extreme of a consequence? To that, I would actually say no, it isn't. In fact, I would argue that if hell is the place for those who have chosen to reject Jesus and his authority, then I think it's actually a perfectly logical consequence. Think about it this way. If you spend your whole life not wanting the peace and presence and kingship of Jesus, then hell is when God lets you experience the fullness of what you want, the permanence of it. It's when he, in the language of the Bible, gives you over fully to the choice that you made on earth. God says, essentially, if what you want is a life completely absent of my rule and my reign, well, then you can have it. In fact, you can have an eternity of it. But that also means an eternity absent of all the good things that God created and allows people to enjoy the things that he allows even his enemies to enjoy. Jesus, earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, famously says that God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He causes the rain to fall. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. The world that we live in right now is full of things that God, in his mercy, has allowed everyone to enjoy regardless of their status with him. Things that theologians will call common grace. Things like life, breath, beauty, creation, relationships, friendships, sex, food, drink, and the list goes on, right? 
all of these things that God allows all of us to enjoy simply because he is gracious in his nature. Whether we realize it or not, everything that you and I love and enjoy about the world exists because God allows us to have and love and enjoy and experience those things. But here's the thing. If we spend our entire lives rejecting God, refusing to acknowledge him as the giver of all of those things, there will come a day where he allows us to experience the full consequences of that rejection. Which also means no him and no common grace gifts from him anymore. All the things that God is patiently allowing us to enjoy in the here and now will be taken away on that day. That, in essence, is what hell is. It is permanent separation from God and all that God gives. In the language of Matthew chapter 25, it's departure. Jesus says to the people on his left, he says, depart from me. And if you think about it, that is not an extreme reaction at all. It's actually an incredibly logical consequence of our choices. If we want life without God then God gives us an eternity without him. You may just be surprised at all that you lose when you lose God. Plus, I want you to just think with me for a second about the alternative to all of this. Let's just imagine for a second a world where hell is not a reality at all, where there is no substantial consequence for evil or sin or anything of that nature. Put yourself there with me for just a moment. Imagine with me a God who creates everything that you and I know. A God who, with his own breath, breathes life into you and I, puts literal air into our lungs so that we can come alive. Imagine a God who puts human beings that he made into a garden where he has provided for them everything that they could ever need or want or hope to have, including unhindered, unrestricted access to him, the God of the universe. And then imagine that God watching as those humans turn their back on him completely. Imagine them taking every single thing that he gave them for good and twisting and distorting it towards evil. Imagine watching those humans hate each other, hurt each other, harm each other, abuse one another. Imagine watching them steal and kill and destroy everything around them. Imagine them wreaking devastation on the good world that he made, wreaking havoc on everyone around them, including themselves, resulting in unthinkable horrors like destitute poverty and injustice and sexual abuse and racism and sexism on down the list and imagine him watching all of that play out for generation after generation after generation on a global scale throughout human history. You have that picture in your head? It feels an awful lot like the world we occupy. Okay, now imagine God witnessing all of that and his response being, uh, not a big deal. I know that feels like a lot, but I'm, I'm much too loving of a God to be bothered or angered or disturbed by any of that. I just choose to think positive thoughts. I'll send them my good vibes. That'll help. How do you feel about that picture of God? Does that feel like a good God 
to you? It doesn't to me. Theologian Fleming Rutledge puts it this way. She says this, we must believe in hell because there is no other way to take seriously the nature and scale of evil in the world. We must believe in hell because there is no other way to do justice to the victims of darkness. We must believe in hell because without it, Christian faith is sentimental and evasive, unable to stand up to reality in this world. Without an unflinching understanding of the radical nature of evil, Christian faith would be nothing but a suburban bedtime story. You see, this is why in many, many other parts of the world, outside of the modern West, where people are faced with injustice after injustice after injustice right before their eyes. And those parts of the world, their hang up with the God of the Bible is not that he is too just, it's that he's too merciful. To them, the irrational thing is actually that God would see it fit to show some people mercy who are responsible for such evil. That to them is the unacceptable thing about the God of the Bible, his mercy, his grace. And maybe you hear all of that and you still think, okay, I, I get it, but I haven't committed any grave injustice. I, I'm a pretty good person, all things considered. I try to do the right thing. It, it's not my fault that all of those things exist. It's not my fault that the world is the way that it is. See, but that's part of the problem. Of course we don't think we're that bad. Nobody ever does. As the popular saying goes, no single raindrop ever feels responsible for the flood. All of us in the room, myself included, are likely responsible for far more evil, far more pain, far more injustice, far more brokenness than we would ever dare to admit. We have just gotten really good at convincing ourselves otherwise. And a God who could witness a world full of that and not be moved by it, not be angered by it even, would not be a God worth worshiping. Just like we are angered by injustice and hate and brokenness, God is angered by it too, but his anger is a perfect anger. And whether we realize it or not, we actually would not want it to be any other way. But finally, maybe your concern with the doctrine of hell is a little more practical in nature than all of that. Maybe to you, the question sounds more like this. It sounds like, doesn't believing in hell make people unloving and cruel as a result of believing in it? Doesn't believing in hell make people just really mean-spirited? Like as soon as people believe in hell, it seems like they start yelling at people on street corners with bullhorns. It, it gives them what they feel like is license to condemn people in the here and now because they believe that those people are going to be condemned by God in the future. So doesn't believing in hell make people mean and cruel and unloving? There are probably two different ways to answer this question. First, do some people use the existence of hell as justification for being unloving towards others? Absolutely. I don't think there's any way to argue that otherwise. But second, and I think this is actually the far more important question to answer, should believing in hell make people act that way? And the answer there, I think, is an undeniable no. 
No, it shouldn't. Believing in hell does not automatically make people mean or unloving or cruel. In fact, the scriptures would make the exact opposite point. It would say that it actually creates the exact opposite reaction. Look with me at Romans 12 up on the screen. Paul says this, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for what's that next phrase? Leave room for God's wrath, i.e. hell. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying when you truly understand that God will have the final say, that he can be trusted to settle the score, and therefore you do not have to, what does that free you up to do? In Paul's mind, it frees you up to love to live at peace with others, to do good towards others, to feed the hungry, to give water to the thirsty, even to do those things towards those who consider themselves your enemies. When you understand the fullness of God's justice, you know that you can entrust that justice to him. So does believing in hell make people mean and judgmental and cruel? It shouldn't. When seen correctly, it actually has precisely the opposite effect. It makes you the most loving type of person the world has ever seen. And listen, just in case you doubt that, in case you think that is nothing but empty theory, I would encourage you to go look at examples just on the internet throughout human history of the people that have offered the most incredible forgiveness and love and provision towards people that have hated them and harmed them. And I guarantee you that nine times out of 10, it'll be a follower of Jesus who was able to do that. Because when you understand God's justice, you understand that he can be trusted with justice. It frees you up to love to forgive, to offer help, to offer care, even towards those that have made themselves your enemy. Which brings us full circle back to Jesus' main idea in this passage. That the mark of whether or not a person truly knows and trusts Jesus is their love. Specifically, their love towards other followers of Jesus. That, according to Jesus, is the telltale sign of whether or not someone has encountered the true saving grace of God is their love for each other. Jesus puts it even more succinctly in the Gospel of John chapter 13. He says this, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is how people will know that you're my disciples, Jesus says, by your love for each other. So we'll just land our time here with this one question. Very, very simple. Based on Jesus' metric in Matthew chapter 25, have you encountered the saving grace of Jesus? which is the same thing as to ask, do you love other followers of Jesus? Jesus says that those are the same question. 
Now, let's remember for a moment as we think on that question, let's remember that the Bible defines love a little differently than we do in our society. In this very passage, in Matthew chapter 25, love is feeding someone when they're hungry. It's giving them something to drink when they're thirsty. It's inviting them into your home and in your life when they are a stranger. It's providing for them materially when they are in need. It's caring for them when they are sick. It's going and visiting them when they are in dire circumstances. Love, in other words, is far more than just having pleasant feelings towards other followers of Jesus. It's more than just going, oh yeah, those city church people, I, I really like them, they're cool. I like hanging out with them. They make me feel good. Those people in my life group, they're fun. I I like hanging out with them when I'm not too busy. All of that is great. And I hope you feel a lot of that towards the other followers of Jesus in your life. But biblically, that is not love. That's affinity. That's friendship. That's having acquaintances in your life. But that's not love. Love, biblically, is actively preferring someone else's well-being, sometimes even at the expense of your own. Love is shown in intertwining your life with other followers of Jesus such that you are keenly aware of their needs and you are actively looking for ways to meet those needs when they arise. To put it another way, biblical love is often demonstrated through sacrifice, through action, through, through tangible, hands-level care and provision for others. Remember those words from 1 John chapter 3 from earlier. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So with that definition of love in mind, let me just ask you the question again. Do you spend time loving other followers of Jesus? Is your life intertwined with theirs in such a way that you know about and and seek out ways to help meet their needs as they arise? Is that a consistent characteristic of your life? Not do you do that perfectly, because none of us do that perfectly, but do you do it consistently? Is it a pattern in your life? Because according to Jesus, in Matthew chapter 25, that is the mark of a follower of Jesus. Not just whether or not we made a spiritual decision at some point in our lives to invite Jesus into our hearts, but whether or not his heart has become our heart. Whether or not we embody the posture towards each other that he embodied towards us in the gospel. Because the operating definition of love that we work from as God's people is the love displayed by Jesus. The the love that he embodied towards others. That's where we start. As it also says in 1 John, this whole sermon brought to you by the book of 1 John and Matthew. This is love. So here's our definition. This is love, John says. Not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son, Jesus, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us in that way, we also ought to love one another. That's the idea. If you want to know what true love really looks like, look no further than the cross of Jesus. 
where God so loved the world that he gave up his only son to come and prefer our eternal well-being to his physical well-being on earth, where he would abandon everything, even down to his own life, so that we could know and love and follow him, where he endured hell itself in his body on the cross so that those who trust him would never have to experience it. That is love. That's the love that saves us. That's the love that rescues us out of our sin. And that's the love that motivates us and frees us up to live in exactly the same way towards each other as followers of Jesus. So I will just ask you, have you encountered that love? If you're brand new to church, if you're brand new to Jesus, if you're brand new to all of this, I would say for a moment, let's just forget the stuff about loving each other. Let me ask you, do you understand that that was done for you? Do you understand that that love was given for you so that you might know God? Do you understand that Jesus endured hell so that you would not have to? And then from there, for those of us that have understood, have grasped, have internalized that, I would just ask, are we echoing that same love to each other? when we talk about other followers of Jesus in our life, when we talk about how we interact with them, when we look at our calendars and our schedules and see the time that we devote to them, would somebody draw from those things, would they draw the conclusion, oh wow, that person's willing to make sacrifices in order to care for those other people? And if not, I would just ask us that we return again and again to the good news of the gospel. This is love. Not that we loved God, not even that we're consistently good at loving other people. This is love that God loved us and gave his son Jesus for us. So every week as a community, we go to the tables throughout this room and we remember that moment when Jesus abandoned it all for us. When he went to the cross where his body would be broken and his blood would be spilled out for us in the grandest demonstration of love that this world has ever seen. And as we go to the tables together as a community, we're reminded that in the same way that Jesus loves us, we are also invited into loving each other. So let's ask for his help together, shall we? Let's pray.